A lot of people think that like one megawatt is the same as another megawatt. Like they think that it's just like all kind of fungible. There are electricity capacity factors that are much better than others and, and, and certain assets are much more reliable. When you see uh, renewables not functioning properly or just not producing enough to meet demand, you see base loads ramp up like nat gas or coal or something like that. China is the second largest country by population in the world. And the CCP is a monolith. That doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, a bunch of different pockets yeah. that within it, right? And so if you know someone at the CCP, if you're well connected, you can, you, you're still, you're still hashing, right? On a long enough time frame, something like this is, is necessarily very good. And I also don't buy the argument that it's necessary for Bitcoin's like security budget. Like that's something that a lot of people say is like, well, it's raising transaction fees and eventually we're gonna have to rely on transaction fees, right? And there will probably also be alternative uses for block space or alternative ways to monetize it that we haven't even thought of. I, I kind of shudder to think that like, you know, monkey JPEGs and like text-based inscriptions are gonna be the thing that keep miners afloat. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Colin, glad we could uh, sit down and record a quick, quick podcast. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me, Joe. I've been looking forward to this. Of course. Yeah, I know. I feel like we've done Twitter spaces before at least and yeah. DM'd and obviously followed each other for a good bit of time so it's good to connect in person yeah absolutely man um love it was you did a blockware really happy to see it unchained great hire by the way guys <laughs> big fan so and yeah it's cool to see um i don't know it's cool to see like the uh, high quality podcasts from some of the bitcoin companies in the space you know because um a lot of times uh some of the media companies they have a different kind of angle you know what i mean and it doesn't always uh, capture what i think are the most important topics so yeah yeah, it's cool to see Bitcoin-focused companies putting out great Bitcoin-only content. Yeah. I think you guys at Luxor have obviously done a great job with that with so many different reports that you guys have put out over the years, the hash rate index, the website. That website is like one of my favorite. When I worked in the mining industry, it's one of my favorite websites to look at actual good mining-related data. So I'm excited to dive into some of these reports that you guys have put oh, out. Yeah, man. Let's do it. Sweet. Um, let's start off strong, the halving, right? Having's coming up, I guess... Right now, I think it's slated for, for April, like mm -hmm. mid, late April. What's going to happen, especially from a mining perspective? Are we going to see this crazy capitulation? Is Are people going to you know escape and, and get by? What do you think is going to happen? So um, quick anecdote, and then I'll answer your question. Um, <laughs> I am in a group chat with a bunch of uh, Bitcoin mining professionals. And, you know, obviously they're talking about let's uh, let's do a having party, right? Like, let's like get everyone together and like watch this thing happen. And it's like probably the only industry in the world where like the mining or the industry professionals are like looking forward to a party where they're watching their revenue get nuked by 50 percent <laughs> yeah. in a matter of seconds. Right. So um, brief uh, kind of just a brief rundown of how this would affect miners from the way we look at it in terms of hash price. So most people probably don't know. Hash price is a way to measure Bitcoin mining revenue potential for a unit of hash rate. Um, so we measure it at Luxor um, in terms of petahash, dollars per petahash per day or Bitcoin per petahash per day. And for those who don't know, a petahash is a thousand terahashes. Um, 100 terahashes would be like kind of a normal uh, kind of um, industry standard S19 uh, Bitcoin miner or like an M30S or something like that. Now they're coming out with uh, more powerful machines like the S21, which is 200 terahashes. But so when we talk about one petahash, you can roughly imagine like 10 machines, right? So the reason we measure in hash price is because when you're a Bitcoin miner, you've got a few inputs that you have to worry about in terms of what affects your profitability in a given time. Obviously, you have your electricity price, which is going to dictate how much profit you're actually making. But it's not just Bitcoin price that affects uh, how much you're making. It's also where the mining difficulty is at, um, because that is going to dictate how many rewards you can expect to earn. Um, based on how much competition is on the network. And also, as we've seen recently with all the inscriptions and ordinal stuff, um, transaction fees can make a huge difference. So hash price accounts for difficulty, Bitcoin price, and transaction fees to show at any given time what miners could be making from their revenue. So when the halving happens, hash price is going to get cut in half immediately. Um, and right now we're at about like 93 bucks per petahash per day. Uh, a lot of that has been driven by the recent like ordinals and inscriptions activity. So we're seeing these crazy pumps in hash price that are like kind of hard to predict because just randomly, 
you know, like the reason this most recent one's happening is Binance listed one of the inscriptions, uh, Ordi, and obviously that's just catalyzing all of this activity to mint more of these. There are text-based inscriptions, um, the ones that kind of drive a lot of this transaction fee revenue. But so once the halving comes around, what you're going to see is, um, you know, let, let's say the halving happens tomorrow. So we're at $93 per pet of hash per day. You would immediately see mining profitability drop to like what, like $46, $47 per pet of hash per day. That puts a lot of miners um, in kind of a, a, a tricky situation because that assumes like depending on what your electricity price is and depending on what your machine efficiency is, you know, at $47 per pet of hash per day, your break-even power cost you know, it's probably around like five or six cents if you're running like a new gen rig, like an S19J Pro. If you're running like an, S9, an S21 or an S19 XP, um, you're, that break-even price is going to be um, a, a little bit lower, you know, probably around like the $20, $30 uh, dollars per petahash uh, range. So uh, my personal belief is that after the halving, what you're definitely going to see, like you, you absolutely see minor capitulation. You'll probably see it from those uh, kind of mid-tier and, and, and kind of smaller scale uh, miners, right, who have hosting agreements where they've got like $7 per kilowatt hour um, or even like, you know, uh, maybe even like six, six and a half. Um, and you're going to probably see a pretty big shakeout in what we would call like the hosting industry in, 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 um, in Bitcoin mining. So, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Bitcoin miners will build out capacity. They can't fill all that capacity with machines they buy themselves. So they have, uh, they have hosting agreements with miners who need rack space, but they don't want to build out the facilities themselves. And a lot of times, obviously, that comes with a premium on your power price, right? Because the hosting company has to make money. And if you are a low um, MOQ, like low minimum order quantity for something like that, you know, your power prices are much higher than if you're a huge miner with like, you know, hundreds or thousands of machines. Uh, so, I mean, I definitely think that what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of those uh, mid and small uh, time operators who kind of came in during the last bull market, they're going to get shaken out first. Obviously, anyone who's higher up the cost curve or who has less efficient uh, machines, they're going to be thrown out. And, you know, honestly, I, I hate to I hate to be like this, but I, I think that it's going to be a, a tough time for North American miners because we have competitive power price, prices compared to like Europe. You know, um, there's more energy independence here. We actually produce oil and natural gas domestically. So that's huge. Um, we also, in most states in the U.S., don't have the same level of like you know climate taxing on on energy um, assets. But um, you know the average industrial cost of electricity in the U.S. depending on the season, because it goes up in the summer for certain areas and it goes down in the winter for some areas, but then it goes up in the winter for other areas that need um, heating and stuff like colder parts of the U.S. The average industrial cost in the U.S. is roughly around six to seven cents per kilowatt hour. So, you know, if we don't see a big bump in Bitcoin's price after the halving or before the halving, um, it's going to be tough. Now, of course, all of this could be totally invalidated if, you know, Bitcoin rips and goes to like 60 plus, then we're looking at a different scenario. But then that is also tricky because you have um, a dynamic where obviously the more profitable it is to mine Bitcoin, the more hash rates getting deployed, which yeah. means difficulties going up. So there's this constant kind of tug of war for what we call um, hash price equilibrium where you know, you're having new supply of hash rate come onto the market and that affects difficulty and then that affects profitability, right? And then when Bitcoin's price moves up or down, then that also affects the equation. So uh, one of my predictions for after the halving is I think that a lot of like big miners, like public miners and private miners, they're already starting to do this. They're gonna be looking for um, other lower cost jurisdictions to operate. So like some of the big places we've seen recently, like Paraguay, um, Argentina, some places in, in South America have become attractive. Paraguay has got the second largest hydro dam in the world. So a lot of cheap energy there that they don't really consume a lot because it's a, I mean, the country's probably got, I think five or 6 million people and they produce like, you know, just gushes of energy from that. A lot of it's sold to Brazil. Um, I think that'll be a hot market. Um, the middle East is an emerging market as well. We're seeing some activity going on in Africa. So it's kind of tricky. There's a lot of corruption with a lot of, you know, um, governments in Africa and, uh, and their energy sectors. So there's some, um, there's definitely some, some, some considerations to make and some things that they have to navigate. But, um, then the last bit to this, sorry, this is a really long winded answer, but this is, Good. this is something that I, I obviously think about a lot with my research. Um, power management strategies and hedging strategies are going to become crucial for survival. You know, I, I really think that 
if you're a mega miner and you have the ability to participate in demand response, you're going to be in a much better position because you can arbitrage the power market and hash price, right? So you're, you're not as you're not as chained to um, you know Bitcoin mining economics when you're able to curtail or sell power back to the grid and then you know kind of capture capture some revenue from that as well. So Very cool. it's going to be tough. Um, but then the last thing here though is you know hash hash rate. You know, I expect probably somewhere between 20 and 30% of the hash rate will probably come offline after the halving, just in response to, you know, miners who are no longer profitable turning off, things like that. But then that kind of creates um, some buoyancy in terms of hash price, right? Because difficulty is going to drop. And so you should actually see after the immediate, you know, 50% reduction in hash price, you'll see a kind of, you know, gradual increase kind of a bounce after that because difficulty is going to be dropping right so yeah that, that, was, <laughs> that, <laughs> that was a lot that was great that that was a really good overview i feel like of what's going to happen after the having I, I think i was watching pierre shards like block time um their podcast and he was talking about like the having parties and like really some miners should probably be having a having funeral <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly and some no doubt will right yeah, yeah literally <laughs> yeah seriously and you know that's the other kind of um, aspect of this is as the as certain miners get washed out you know you're probably going to see pretty good opportunity for distressed asset sales yeah um mergers and acquisitions or just not really probably mergers but more just acquisitions of mining sites like clean spark is a great example i know you just had uh, matt on recently right and um you know, they did a really good job in the last bear market of looking at distressed assets, buying up, you know, plug and play sites that like already had all the rigs in them. They already had the power purchasing agreements and they scooped them up on, you know, for pennies on the dollar for what they would have cost to build out. Right. And so I think you'll see a lot of activity like that too. So like, there's definitely going to be an exit ramp. It's just a question of like, is that exit ramp good enough for you to recoup your capital, make a, make a return, or are you going to be underwater after that? So, yeah. I also think of it though as like I'm super bullish on Bitcoin from like a very long term perspective. And yes, I I completely agree pretty much with all of what you said. Like if you know price is still the same, a lot of like the smaller, weaker miners are probably just gonna get knocked out and it's gonna be tough for them and then the larger players might benefit as difficulty falls and maybe they get some some, you know, larger percentage of the total market share. But like if Bitcoin just, you know, rips and we, an ETF gets approved and a lot of more additional capital gets into the space, I could see, you know, you know, $500,000 Bitcoin, like, you know, over the next couple of years. And then all of a sudden we're back off to the races again of building maybe mining infrastructure in places that it shouldn't be built, signing power and hosting contracts that should never be signed and buying ASICs at prices that should probably never be bought at. Do you think that if we, if, you know, the price of Bitcoin does go to absurd level and we do have another parabolic bull market, do you think that there's, that's going to happen again? I think that that's, that that's a very likely scenario, right? I mean, it's kind of like rinse and repeat each cycle. Um, I think that we're going to get to a point eventually when the block subsidy is low enough to where, um, I mean, I, I think, so to answer it in two points, yeah. I do think on a long enough time frame, um, probably energy producers will be the majority of hash rate um of, of hash rate owners and operators they'll probably have mining companies operate it for them they may not have jvs but like yeah. energy produce energy producers or um miners who are tied to the grid very closely are going to probably be the only ones on like you know i'm talking like 50 100 plus year time frame right yeah. like they're going to be the ones who are operating the machines right um that being said to to your point you know um we've seen uh, we've seen $50, $60 per petahash hash price before, you know, after the last halving in 2020, it was the lowest it had ever been. And people were having the same conversation, right? Now, the majority of hash rate was still in China at that point. So it was kind of a different ball game because, you know, you just had a bunch of guys hooked up to, um, you know, the Three Gorges Dam or power plant, coal power plants in um, the coal rich regions like Inner Mongolia and stuff, right? So, I mean, they had just dirt cheap power and it didn't really matter that much. But miners in North America, the ones in Canada and the few that were in the U.S. at the time before the migration after the China ban, which happened in 2021, you know, they were sweating for sure. But then what happened? Then Bitcoin just absolutely juiced. We went from like, I think 50, yeah, like 55 was uh, 55 or $57 per petahash was the low um, all the way uh, up to. Uh, like 420 at the peak of the last, you know, bull market. So 
And a lot of that was caused by the fact that, you know, China banned mining, like half of the network was turned off almost yeah. overnight. And you just saw this crazy, you know, just ramp up of, of hash price. And so anyone plugged in anywhere else was just like printing money. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, Bitcoin went down to 30K, then went back up to 60K and it, and we saw, you know, the average hash price for, for 2021 was somewhere in the ballpark of like $200 per pet ash per day or something like that, or at least above that. And that, that's very rough numbers. So I do think that, that there's a possibility of that for sure. It's just like, can you hold on long enough? Yeah. Right. And I think that there will be, there will be a, a, a there's going to be probably just enough of a margin for a lot of guys to where uh, they can hold on. And then for the public companies, it's also a matter of they have a bunch of instruments that they can leverage. Like maybe they're going to leverage their Bitcoin treasury to try to earn yield. Maybe they're going to sell it off to have cash to weather the storm. Um, maybe they're able to do, um, you know, some sort of equity raise like through an at the market offering or something similar. Um, and then, you know, maybe uh, they can finance through debt or something. So like they have more instruments than most of the private miners to try to stay alive. Yeah. And uh, I do think that uh, kind of to your point, we will see maybe a flush out, but then, you know, if Bitcoin just goes at super bull mode, it, all bets are off, right? Yeah. You know, you're going to see investment in, into anything and everything for mining, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've ever asked you about this, but the, the China mining ban, I, I, you know, you've hear people talk about like how FTX was, you know, kind of selling fake Bitcoin back at the end of 2021 mm -hmm. and maybe that suppressed the price. And then back in 2021, like you pointed out, you know, Bitcoin was at, you know, 60K or 50, at least 50 something K at the first part of 2021. And then China mining ban happened and, and Bitcoin went down to like 30K. Do you think the China mining ban caused that price dip to some extent, or would you say no? Uh, it's a good question. Um, there is no hard evidence, but the entire mining ban was coincided with a crackdown on, on crypto and Bitcoin in general. Um, and we have heard reports of like, you know, basically some of the like crypto reach in China basically being forced to sell their Bitcoin at that point. Um, Interesting. Yeah, uh, that that's that might be rumor and speculation, and I, that, yeah. my memory's fuzzy on where yeah. I heard this. But um, you know, the CCP does the CCP be doing a lot of things, man. And I heard that you know, for some of the guys that really had a lot of their wealth in Bitcoin or like USDT or something, USDT is yeah. really popular in China because sure. um, you know it's like it's not volatile and it's just an easy on ramp and off ramp to the US dollar. Yeah. Um, but you know, some people I heard were forced to liquidate their coins. If you also just think about it from maybe even a um, the migration perspective, maybe some of the miners had to sell some of their stacks just to pay for costs to move the rigs. I mean, you're talking about massive operations, right? Yeah. Like you and you need, you know, maybe you've got a, even if you only have a few thousand ASICs, like the logistics of getting yeah. those down from the mountains in Szechuan where all the hydro is, <laughs> putting them on a boat and shipping it to the U.S. Then like putting money down for a PPA, yeah. buying up sites, you know, like you have to have the capital for that from somewhere. Right. So I definitely do think that that could have been a consideration. Yeah. Um, you know, I think sometimes we take for granted how much of the market um, was driven by interest in China. I mean, even like one of the this is kind of tangential, but you look at transaction fees after the China mining ban and they drop like that. I mean, like it was it was not uncommon to have 10 to 12 to 15 to 20 percent of all block rewards coming from transaction fees when mining was dominant in China and then all of the Chinese miners turn off and then for 2021 the average was like one to two cent one yeah. to two percent of transact of block rewards were transaction fees and you kind of got to ask yourself well what's up with that some of it is the fact that the Chinese miners um weren't using Segwit like so they for what they just didn't want to upgrade to Segwit and like none of the pools uh, like supported it um, and then that changed after the mining ban. You can actually see Segwit usage go up uh, in terms of uh, UTXOs spent. Um, but there's also, you know, I've heard that sometimes the the mining pools would kind of like play um, kind of uh, games in the mempool where they yeah. would just bid up transaction fees to raise the average transaction fee level because, you know, it's like Ant Pool via, B via BTC and... Um, btc.com were basically owned by the same entity it was like they were yeah. binance's pool right so it's like if you've got like 60 percent of the hash rate then and you're making those transaction fees back anyway and it's going yeah. into your pocket then like why not just try to like raise that floor so yeah you know who knows if that's true 
but it's crazy when you look at the chart and you see stuff like that so yeah definitely i mean that's pretty much what i've heard and it seemed pretty reasonable they were just spamming the mempool with transactions and yeah you know getting a lot of that money back and then making everyone else using that word pay more so yeah, yeah. it makes sense yeah um you guys also are I know Luxor is, is big into, you guys start, are starting to get big into hash rate derivatives. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of like explain what that is and, and why a miner should care? And then if you can, this might be difficult, but like why should a regular Bitcoin holder that just has a lot of Bitcoin, should they care at all about hash rate derivatives at all or, or um, not really? <laughs> if they're trying to, if they're a really good trader and they're trying to leverage their Bitcoin stack to earn more Bitcoin, it could make sense. Um, uh, but for most Bitcoin holders, no, it's not really something that like, you know, your average guy, yeah. like, you know, like your average Joe with like a hardware wallet and a few Bitcoin or even like 10 Bitcoin or something like they're not really going to benefit from this. But so hash rate derivatives, um, you know, kind of simply put are a way for miners to hedge their um, exposure to hash rate. So miners can hedge their power prices. Um, they can do that through a number of financial instruments or through like power purchasing agreements. They can hedge their Bitcoin price exposure through, you know, um, you know, Bitcoin uh, futures and other financial instruments. But they had no real way of like hedging hash rate, which is like, you know, almost like a commodity in its own right. Like Bitcoin is a commodity, but the compute power itself is also almost like a commodity too, like kind of in an abstract way. And so what Luxor kind of thought as well, you know, in all other commodity producing sectors, like, you know, you have, um, you have forwards and derivatives for like corn, soy, soybeans, uh, you have it for oil, like all of these other commodities, there are financial instruments that commodity producers can use to hedge their exposure to the price of that commodity. Right. So like great example. And like for like, you know, um, farmers, right. With corn, they, they are actually, they're trading all of the time because they don't know if their crop is going to be successful, like maybe it rains too much, maybe it doesn't rain enough, maybe there's a blight, right? There's a lot of pricing, there's a lot of uh, uh, risks that they're taking on when they're planting a crop. And so if they can find a way to hedge their income or lock their income in for a specific time, instead of have to worry about what the price of corn is gonna be a year at, from now, from after they're planting, right? And they're actually have har harvested and um, processed it then they would rather do that than, you know, bank on, you know, what's going to happen with the price of their commodity in a year, right? So for hash rate derivatives, um, we specifically use two different um, types. We use uh, non-deliverable and deliverable forwards. So a non-deliverable forward would be a uh, forward that is settled in USD or BTC. And non-deliverable just means that you're not getting physical delivery of the commodity you're producing. So hmm. like uh, non-deliverable forward or deliverable forward would be actual physical delivery of that thing. So if you're doing like deliverable forward for corn or for oil, you get barrels of oil or you get bushels of corn, right? And so for hash rate derivatives, you would get actual physical delivery of the hash rate to a hmm. pool account. Huh. And so, yeah. And so what, what the hash rate forwards are, and we'll just talk about them kind of like uh, on a high level from like the non-deliverable side, is what you're basically doing is you have a miner on one side who says, I have a hundred, I have a hundred petahash. And I want to sell this 100 petahash at, call it $80 per petahash per day for three or four, five, six months. Yeah. Maybe one month, maybe two months. We uh, we offer up to six months. They can then lock in that price if there's a buyer on the other side who's willing to buy that production. And so it's basically a way for miners to lock in revenue. And it's a way for maybe uh, TradFi or other investors to gain synthetic exposure to Bitcoin mining yeah. and Bitcoin itself, right? And in a way where they can actually, like they're getting that miner's production, right? And then, you know, the miner uh, is making money for their hash rate regardless. And the investor is then either earning a spread from that because they bought at a price that is favorable and then they can sell that later, right? And capture that spread, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're losing out because they actually bought hash price at a crappy level and now they can't actually make a return on it. So, yeah. I mean, you're, you're kind of like, it's, you're, it's a trade, right? And so like you're going to win or lose based on that. But for miners, it's kind of a no-brainer because you can guarantee your revenue for a specific period yeah. of time. Um, and, you know, this is great for a number of things. Um, it's kind of great and for project financing because a lot of miners, a problem that they'll have is they go to um, a, a financier and they're trying to take out a loan to build out more capacity. And the financier says, I want to see guaranteed revenue. And, you know, 
if if sure. if if that financier is looking at hash price and they see like oh wow sure. you know like bitcoin tanked by like 20% over one week and now your revenue is cut in half or like even like you know like difficulties ramping up and your revenue gets destroyed over a month because a lot of hash rate is being deployed if you can show them that it's like hey i've got 6 months of guaranteed income then they might be more likely to write uh, underwrite a loan that then lets them buy more machines more capacity things like that um, and we actually just released um so I was talking about non-deliverable and deliverable forwards. We just released our deliverable forwards product, which includes like fixed and upfront payment. So miners can now receive all of the um, payment for selling their hash, hash rate forward like immediately. So if you're selling it for six months at $80 per hash per day with like 100 pet hash, you're receiving all of that money for your hash rate immediately in one block. Hmm. So then they don't really have to sweat revenue for that month and they can kind of like rest easy, whatever happens to hash price. You know, they they don't really care. And if it goes up, sure, they would have made more money if they were just going with, if they just like, you know, were mining every day and just taking the, the income straight from their, their pool account. Um, but, you know, sometimes it goes down and then you're happy that you uh, locked in that hash price when you could, right? So Yeah. Do you see like, if, the, if we do go into a pretty major bull market, do you see miners really taking advantage of this product? Like, even more than than they might be today. Like I could see if you know Bitcoin's at a crazy high price and hash price is hash price is a crazy high price. I could see them be like, oh, actually, I kind of do want to kind of lock it in to some extent as much as I can before difficulty goes up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is something that um, is is definitely feasible. Um, one thing that we've seen recently, it's tricky. It depend. It really depends on what's driving the the, the hash price uh, increase, right? Like, so what we've seen recently with um, the ordinals and inscriptions yeah. things, right? Like transaction fees are going up, but it's extremely volatile, right? Yeah. Like I think last week they went up to like nine, they went like they were, they drove hash price up to like $90 per hash per day. And then the next day it was at 82, yeah. right? So, you know, traders, the people who are making markets on these things are not stupid. They see something like that. And it's sometimes hard to find a buyer yeah. because the buyer is gonna be like, well, like, yeah, this miner is trying to sell it to me at like 85 right now, but I'm looking at, I'm looking at what's happened in the past and maybe this revenue is, is ephemeral and it, it's yeah. just going to evaporate within a week. Um, I mean, that happened with the inscriptions things most recently. I mean, inscriptions were, you know, kind of like the activity was all but dead and, you know, transaction fees were back to like two, 3% of block rewards. And now I just look today and they're like over 30%. Yeah. Right. So um, it really depends on what's driving it. I do think though that in a bull market, like absolutely these miners are incentivized to lock in those prices when they're there. Um, and you know, they're never going to get like one for one what the spot rate is because, you know, again, there's that uncertainty. They're going to be able to just get just below it. And then, you know, there also are trading plays here where the people who are buying it, they're basically receiving, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining income at a discount to spot. And so they might want to take a bet where they can buy it at a certain price and then they can resell it again and try to capture that return, right? Yeah. So um, there are a lot of different trading strategies. The, the trick is, is like, can you find buyers at all those levels, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of do want to talk a little bit about uh, inscriptions and ordinals because I feel like it's it's such an interesting <laughs> <laughs> topic. I'll, I'll talk about it, man. I I don't get it. I've never really been like okay. in an F like. I get the psychology behind it, but yeah. I just don't care about, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and maybe I'm just not enough of a gambler. Okay. You know? Fair. But anyway, sorry. I, I actually didn't know question. what your, your perspective of it was going to be. I thought, I thought you, you might, thought yeah. I was an ordinal enjoyer. Yeah. 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 I enjoy it as much as uh, I actually just wrote an article for Bitcoin magazine's print edition on this. Um, like as a miner, I love them. Yeah. Right. Like I'm saying Yeah. Right. Like a dollar, <laughs> we're dollar and cents guys. Right. Like yeah. hash price was like scraping up against all time lows. It was at like $60 per head, pet of hash per day. Like, um, um, and, uh, I think in October or September. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now it's back up above 70. I mean, I didn't think we would see that for a long time. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, it's at 90 today, but you know, it's, it's, it's stayed consistently above 70 since this latest Bitcoin pump and the ordinals inscriptions thing. Um, yeah. Is there anything in particular? Like, I mean, like we were talking about the China mining ban and how like, you know, the mempool is kind of getting spammed yeah. and that drove up transaction fees and, you know, made it more expensive to send Bitcoin, you know, obviously as a miner, whether you're in China or the U S you probably, you know, liked more transaction fees, like as you know, I, I own, you know, an ASIC and, right. and I hope that, you know, there are more transaction fees for the ASIC, but I also like, I'm a Bitcoiner and I right. want people to have access to Bitcoin yeah. and be able to receive and send Bitcoin with, you know, 
little to no fees yeah. so more people can take self-custody and and use the network i think as it's intended to be, to be used yeah. yeah yeah so it's it's interesting it's like um it's an interesting case study because it's really putting the whole idea like block space as a free market to the test yeah. right because it is like if you're paying for the block space you get to use it like that's just how it works yeah like i can criticize why you're using the block space but like bitcoin doesn't care like yeah. the miners don't care because they're seeing that these ordinal degens are like bidding up transaction fees and they love it right um and and what's interesting too is specifically what you're talking about galaxy research put out a great report on ordinals i'd recommend everyone read it um if you want to learn more about how they impact uh block space dynamics specifically but the interesting thing that that report kind of revealed was the majority of the transaction fee increases aren't coming directly from the ordinals. They're actually coming from the indirect pressure that they place on the mempool. Makes sense. And, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and most Bitcoin users, um, the vast majority of them are not as sophisticated, I think, as we would think. Yep. Think, you know, like we're kind of in um, a bubble with like professionals and people who like really love Bitcoin and done a lot of time to learn how it works. And, you know, every time I send a transaction, I'm going to mempool.space to see, yeah. like, how much can I get away with yeah. where I'm not going to be waiting, like, three days for <laughs> this to clear, right? Um, but most people just use the transaction fee estimators on their wallet, which are overly conservative yep. because they want to make sure that no one's, like, DMing support. And be like, yeah. well, my transaction, like, didn't get confirmed, like... You know, it's like, my I'm waiting for it. Like, this is important. Yeah. And um, and all of the exchanges are the same way. Yep. And the exchanges are the same way, too, because they partially want to capture a little bit of that spread from that transaction fee, right? Um, but so what happened with the most recent inscription spree, which were driven specifically by, um, so they're, I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, but it's so freaking complicated. It's such <laughs> a weird rabbit hole. Um, the first inscriptions were image-based. Yeah. And those benefited from SegWit's data discount. So for most of your listeners probably know how what SegWit did for, for block space but, um, and for block weight. But what, what, what SegWit did specifically was it took the uh, script sig, which has the uh, private key signature and the public key for a transaction, and it moved it from the transaction hash section and it put it into a separate part of the block. What this, and, and that part of the block is, is discounted in terms of how much, uh, how many Satoshis it counts per byte of data. Um, so it's like a it's 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 a it's a four to one discount. So for every uh, four bytes of data in the transaction has in the transaction uh, section of the block, you the segwit section is discounted and it only counts for one. Uh, it's it's block weight. I, I I still don't I don't understand why we use block weight. I kind of get it. Yeah. But basically, it's going to be discounted um, by uh, like four to one there. And so um, the image-based inscriptions are um, benefit from the SegWit discount because the actual arbitrary data for the JPEG or whatever you're inscribing lives in the SegWit section of the block. Um, so the early images were not actually driving fees that much because they didn't cost that much actually to transact because the majority of the data was just the transaction data and you know the, all the arbitrary data that was actually heavy was SegWit discounted. Mm -hmm. Well, that changed when we started getting these things called BRC20s. And BRC20s are basically just, it's an opcode function. So like, you know, Bitcoin has opcode functions that are kind of like if-then statements for transactions. And what the BRC20s were is you would basically create an opcode for a deploy contract, they'd call them, and then you'd give it a ticker. So like ORDI, O-R-D-I. And then you would have a um, maximum supply for that token series and then you would have a minting limit per transaction so for already i think it was like 21 million and then there was a thousand uh minting limit per transaction mm -hmm. so this does two things one those don't benefit from the segwit discount nearly as much um and two this finally created ethereum-esque minting incentives for <laughs> ordinals because you know part of the the appeal of nfts on ethereum was it was like opening up a pack of pokemon cards or like tops mm -hmm. like uh, uh you know like baseball or football cards right yeah. you would go on to um whatever you know crypto kitties or punks or apes right yeah. and you would interact with the smart contract that would mint the nft for you and you didn't know what you were going to get yeah like are you going to get like an ape with like a crown and like a cigarette hanging out or like are you going to get like a dude with like his eyeball you know just like dumb shit but um, kind of the appeal there was this kind of like you're rolling the dice or you're like opening up a pack of cards and you might get something new or rare every single time, right? And so, um, but you're also trying to beat everyone else to those yeah. uh, NFTs, right? You wanted to be first to mint whatever in a series. You wanted to be the first to get like the first ape 
or like an under 100 ape for whatever thing it was, right? And so for the BRC20s, it kind of created the same incentives because you wanted to be the first to mint the uh, BRC20 series. You wanted to get like the first one in the series or like, you know, under 100 or something. So everyone started kind of trying to outpace each other and outbid each other to mint these BRC20 tokens. Interesting. Yeah, and so what that ends up doing is you end up flooding the mempool with those and then that creates indirect pressure on all of the other Bitcoin users who now have to bid up their transaction fees to try to get priority placement in blocks. Yep. And so I think it was the numbers that I crunched, it was like since ordinals have been introduced, they have accounted for, I think it was 20% of all transaction fees, but all, but 30% of transaction fee volume since December, 2022. And that kind of illustrates the point, and this is what Galaxy points out in their research report, is that when you look at what was driving a lot of the fees, it was actually overpayment from economic users, from yeah. people just sending normal transactions. Yeah. And so from that perspective, I am kind of like you, I'm kind of torn. It It's not, a, I don't think it's a very, it's not a good thing for Bitcoin's utility. It's not a good thing for average users, right? Because like at the end of the day, you know, maybe there are legitimate use cases for inscriptions. A lot of the guys on our team have talked about like some pretty cool applications. Um, potentially down the road, but you know, like the, the, the VRC 20 tokens are just, they're text. They're yeah. literally just text-based inscriptions floating around in the mempool until they get put into a block. Yeah. And like, I don't really understand the utility of that outside of just trying to make money and gambling. It's just like all speculation. So. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Cause like, I feel like the core ethos of Bitcoin is having a low time preference, thinking far out into the future not gambling and doing things in a fairly conservative manner and then you have like crypto and and brc20 tokens that are kind of like the exact opposite of what bitcoin stands for even though i think a lot of people get into bitcoin because they're like gambling or they're greedy and they're like oh yeah, the number go up but sure. then they later learn that like oh this is just long-term savings technology and i just need to sit and hold it and maybe not just think, hey, how do I make money today or tomorrow, but how do I preserve my capital for the next five, 10, 50, 100 years? So yeah, it's, it's kind of yeah. different. It's kind of interesting, like, you know, contrasting those two, like the ordinals and, and Bitcoin itself. Yeah, and I think that you're right to point that out because it really is a different perspective. I mean, it's no accident that most of the ordinals and inscriptions guys are like, they migrated from the Ethereum ecosystem. Yeah. So like a lot of the guys who are active and a lot of the guys who are like really passionate and or like minting a lot of the stuff or trying to like make money from it, they were doing the same on Ethereum and like Solana and like other NFT chains, right? Um, now, not to be totally pessimistic there because there's also like, we've seen a lot of like younger kids and newcomers come in and like ordinals have gotten them to like download Bitcoin Core and learn about transaction structure and like, you know, they, yeah, and they're learning about a lot of technical like topics and, and, and the inner workings of Bitcoin that like most Bitcoiners actually don't really yeah. take much, you know, like they think they know it, but yeah. when you really get down to like block, like, like transaction construction and like all this other stuff, there, there's a hundred different ways that you can do it and it's super complicated. So it's kind of been cool for that, for, for that point. Like it's like kind of been an, a really like strangely like educational tool for like how Bitcoin works. Yeah. But I do think that there is kind of a conflicting incentive here for why people are using it, right? And again, I'm not going to tell you that you can't pay for the block space or that you shouldn't. I think trying to censor them is really, to me, against the whole point of having a permissionless blockchain. But at the same time, like, that doesn't mean that we can't criticize it. Like, I, I you know, I don't yeah. really think that on a long enough time frame, something like this is, is necessarily very good. And I also don't buy the argument that it's necessary for Bitcoin's like security budget, like, right? Yeah. Like that's something that a lot of people say, it's like, well, it's raising transaction fees and eventually we're gonna have to rely on transaction fees, right? And, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying, if you assume on a long enough time frame that energy producers are gonna be the one mining Bitcoin, like arbitraging energy prices or just soaking up excess electricity when they can't sell it, I, you know, I, I think that whatever transaction fees in, you know, a hundred years when we no longer have any block subsidy, um, it's probably going to be enough if Bitcoin goes if, if you if Bitcoin goes where we think it's all going and there's enough uses on the network, um, and there will probably also be alternative uses for block space or alternative ways to monetize it that we haven't even thought of. Um, you know, there will be new applications at that point. So, 
Anyway, I, I just, I, I, I kind of shudder to think that like, you know, monkey JPEGs and like text-based inscriptions are going to be the thing that keep miners afloat in yeah. like 50 years. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's just kind of funny to think about because like if, you know, Bitcoin security budget, which I don't even really like that term to begin with, yeah. but like if Big monkey JPEGs <laughs> fix Bitcoin security budget, then Bitcoin was broken to begin with. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we can't rely on that. So yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think it's something to worry about and I don't think that it really makes much sense. Um, I know you guys also have an ASIC trading desk mm -hmm. and, and I know I worked at Blockware and Blockware has a Blockware marketplace, which is like more about like hosted ASICs right. and you guys have the, the non-hosted ASIC trading desk, which right. is, which is really cool. Have you guys seen like specific flows of ASICs? I know like you guys have previously, you guys have posted pretty cool charts where it's like a map of the world showing like all the different places you guys have bought and sold ASICs from. Are there like currently or in the past, have you guys noticed flows of like, oh, machines are going from the US to Paraguay or from China to, to wherever? Like, have there been any trends recently or in the past that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, I think the biggest one, and we, this is not us specifically because we can't operate in this market because okay. of sanctions, but the Russians are deploying hella hash rate right now. Huh. Um, like a lot of, when I was in Hong Kong for the World Digital Mining Summit, um, there were, bunch of Eastern Europeans and Russians there and Bitmain and some of our second Bitmain um, and then some secondary sellers that we're pretty close with uh, were saying that right now Russia is like their biggest market by far. Interesting. Um, maybe not by far, but it's like the majority of some of the sales that they're doing. Huh. Um, and there, there's, there's probably a number of reasons for that that I don't know if I'm like totally equipped to speak on. But what I've heard is that, you know, um, a lot of people are trying to escape the ruble, you know, like the war with Ukraine. Um, has has created a lot of question marks for like what's going to happen to the country in the future or like um just you know the sanctions put a lot of pressure too on on russian capital markets and all these other things now sure like they're opening up you know um trading avenues with like BRICS countries and like other countries in in, in asia and things like that um but it seems like a lot of russians are trying to find ways to um yeah earn uh earn a return at a time when like they they're kind of shut out from like all of the capital markets that they would otherwise be able to tap into. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Russia's flush with, with, with natural resources. I mean, they've got shitloads of, of oil and shitloads of natural gas. So it seems like a pretty, uh, um, a pretty, uh, a pretty understandable fit. And I think that, you know, it's going to be those markets, places like Russia, um, places in South America, that um, have cheaper energy, maybe some places in the Middle East, and that's what's what that's what North American miners are going to be competing against um, when the having comes. And so, uh, you know, I think that you'll probably continue to see some. Uh, you'll you'll continue to see market share increase in those regions. I think because yeah. I, I I I'm kind of of the mind that maybe North America, from a hash rate perspective, has kind of peaked, but. Um, I'd love to be proven wrong. You're talking about like as a percentage of total net crash. Yeah. 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 Like there's always going to be capital investment and there's always going to be miners deploying rigs. There's always going to be someone who has cheap enough energy to deploy the rigs. But I think that in terms of what we've seen over the last, um, the China mining ban and uh, since then till now, so we, we probably reached some, some sort of peak. I could be totally wrong. Um, and I, I'm part of me hopes that I'm wrong. Part of me hopes that I'm not because I really I do think that decentralization of hash rate is, is important. Like I don't really care if hash rate is in Russia. I don't yeah. I don't care if hash rate is in China, which there's not really much anymore, but there's still some. You know, like I don't care about politicizing where it is. Um, and and I think that there there could be potential, not attack vectors, but like stuff like the OFAC compliant blocks, right? Yeah. That we, we saw like Marathon trying to push for a while there. Yeah. I mean, if 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 the government really wanted to in the US and they went to miners and they said you can't process transactions from these sanctioned addresses, then I, that that that's a very real reality. So um Yeah. Yeah. You're bringing up Russia is, is interesting. It's funny how like censorship is such like an interesting advertisement for Bitcoin. Like it really makes the value proposition of Bitcoin so much more clear. And I'm not surprised at all that people in Russia or, you know, the government itself yeah. or, or private companies or whoever is like, wait, we can be cut off from the entire global financial system like that. 
we need yeah. another technology that still works over the internet and we can you know send value to other people and receive you know physical goods or, or right digital services or whatever it just seems like over time if censorship does become more of a problem for other countries or even in the u.s like bitcoin will probably be there as a pretty good solution yeah and that's i'm glad that you brought up the um getting cut off from swift and just totally cut off from like capital markets in all of the other western nations because i think that is probably a huge driver for that for sure yeah definitely um let's talk a little bit more about energy markets i guess like obviously energy is a critical component to to mining bitcoin it's like the the highest variable cost i guess can you talk tell us a little bit about like energy markets in the u.s like you know what maybe talk a little bit about nuclear i'll, I'll leave mm -hmm. this open-ended yeah. but how do you want to take it yeah um i i think that if you look at where most of the hash rate is concentrated in the U.S., it's no surprise that it's in those areas like, you know, Texas um, with, a, you know, basically um, deregulated is not the right word, but, you know, it's it's a totally open market for energy. Like, you know, if, as long as as long as you check the right boxes and get approved, you know, energy companies come in here and they can buy and sell on an open market. And um, that, you know, Bitcoin miners love that because it, you know, that drives down the price historically. It started to become a little bit iffy because they've overinvested in wind and solar. Um, that's why you see price spikes um, in, in Texas in the summer because the wind doesn't blow. And then what they, ex you know, they expect to get 20%, Texas expects to get 20% of its grid's capacity from wind on a given day, which is pretty crazy when <laughs> you think about it. Like that's a lot of energy to be betting on actually having the wind blowing in your favor at a given time right so i mean pierre does great um message uh, uh, kind of like micro kind of research about this or tweets like he'll talk about like you know um power prices are spiking up because the wind's not blowing like and and um you know uh wind is underperforming and so and and in texas we've actually seen over the last few years power prices have gone up significantly because their energy generation has been complete has been more and more contingent on um you know intermittent and at times unreliable renewable sources um and that's what a lot of people don't understand i think and like um you know energy systems are super complex um, i've just been amazed at how much i didn't understand at all about elect uh, energy and, and specifically electricity generation until i started in the bitcoin mining industry um, but I think a lot of people think that like one megawatt is the same as another megawatt. Like they think that it's just like all kind of fungible. Um, but no, there are like there are there are resources and there are uh, energy generation. Um, um, there are electricity capacity factors that are much better than others, and 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 certain assets are much more reliable. Yep. And and when you see when you see uh, um, renewables not functioning properly or just not producing enough to meet demand you see base loads ramp up like nat gas or coal or something like that. Um, and kind of ex extending that out to the rest of the US, there's a reason there are no miners in California because California has like some of the highest electricity prices in the US. I think it's third behind um, behind Hawaii and hmm. maybe Alaska. Hmm. Um, and, and part of that is because they've got a lot of wind and a lot of solar and they've been, they've been decommissioning nuclear power plants um, because we're allergic for some reason in this country to nuclear for a lot of reasons that are pretty deep. Um, they go back to, you know, just people think of Chernobyl, they think of Three Mile Island, they think of Fukushima, um, and they think it's this extremely dangerous thing. Um, but then you go to the Southeast, you know, and you go to a place like Georgia, and Georgia's just flush with the nuclear. Um, Tennessee's got a lot of nuclear too, it's got a lot of hydro, South Carolina's got a lot of nuclear. Um, and there are more miners than I think a lot of people would think in these regions because the power prices are some of the most competitive in the U.S. Um, like, you know, Georgia um, has, I think, an industrial-wise, like any from any any given year, like six to seven cents per kilowatt hour. You can't really get any better than that. Tennessee is the same way. South Carolina is pretty similar. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is thanks to the fact that they, they you know, they didn't take the they didn't take the solar pill. They didn't yeah. take the wind pill, right? Like you look at the energy systems in those states, and it's mostly nuclear and it's mostly nat gas. Um, they might have some renewables, but it's a very small slice of the pie. And I think there's you know 
without getting too political about it, it makes total sense to me. I mean, these, these are conservative areas, they're dollars and cents. They usually are not kind of captured by narratives and, you know, they invest in things that are just going to work and that, that they're going to be reliable. And yeah, you, you mentioned nuclear. Um, I, I think that the best thing that we could do for our grid, for energy independence, and, and, and if you want to, if you want to talk about the climate angle, the best thing you can do to reduce emissions is nuclear. I mean, pound for pound, it is the cleanest form of energy that we have produced, that we have devised as humans. Um, and the only reason that it's not more popular, I, I think, is a few things, like I said, those disasters, which is, is just total fake news because, you know, you know, there's only one documented case of someone dying from nuclear radiation fallout in Fukushima, <laughs> you know, and like the only reason that Chernobyl was as bad as it was is because they were using an outdated reactor at the time that it melted down. Right. And so. Like, yeah, you're not going to be able to abstract away for all of the, you're not going to be able to totally save yourself from some of those accidents. Um, but even with the accidents that we have had outside of Chernobyl, they haven't been that catastrophic. I mean, if you want to look at like, if you want to look at um, energy sources that are the worst in terms of, um, you know, actual like, uh, you know, exposure deaths and stuff like that, coal is terrible. Yeah. Coal is awful. And what happened in Germany? Germany shut down all of its nuclear power plants and now the majority of its power capacity comes from coal. So it's this weird kind of tug of war with the environmentalists. Like they think that they're doing this great thing. Like we're gonna like, you know, hasten the uh, transition to like solar and wind energy for all. And then what ends up happening, same thing happened in Pennsylvania recently. It's actually just a big boondoggle for oil and gas and coal for the, for the um, fossil fuel industries because they're the ones who benefit most because you need base load yeah. and you're not gonna get that from renewables, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how like some people think that because you might be or whoever might be, you know, anti-wind or anti-solar, they also like they think they just naturally hate the environment when in reality it's like not, no one really hates the, no. the environment. <laughs> yeah, like you're probably like by, you know, getting the the materials and the resources to build solar panels and wind turbines and like replace them and clean them and all this stuff. You might be damaging the environment more by doing that versus yeah. building a massive nuclear power plant or yeah. a small nuclear power plant. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important point because people don't actually know what goes into refining a solar panel. Steve Barber of Upstream Data calls them Kohler panels yeah. because, you know, you have to have massive diesel powered equipment to extract the minerals. Then you have to have coal fired power plants to actually refine them into solar panels. And then you're putting them on diesel ships to ship them to the US and it's like like if you it d depends on how you're doing the carbon accounting right like that's the thing yeah, like they always yeah. do these like kind of like this is like the carbon footprint of this thing and like when you look at carbon accounting for solar panels or, or wind turbines they don't factor any of that's that stuff funny, in yeah. you know and it's like if you want to do more honest carbon accounting and i've seen these numbers it's actually worse to do that on a long term basis versus like just putting up a nat gas power plant, right? Huh. Like if, yeah. if, if depending on how you're looking yeah. at it, right? You can play with the data any way you want, but I think it goes back to like, people just don't understand how these systems work. They don't understand how complex they are and what goes into them. And um, yeah, and I think that's a good point too. It's like, oh, you don't like solar or wind? Like you must hate the environment, bro. It's like, first of all, I like solar where it makes sense. Yeah. If it was cost effective, like I'd put solar on my house, Yeah, you know, like for microgrid stuff, it's cool. And it's just, you know, like it, 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 as long as you have a way to like actually store the energy, which I think battery technology eventually will get to a point where that's more viable. Like, absolutely. I'd love to see solar and microgrids, love to see it on houses. Like, I think that that's great because yeah. that's also energy independence, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to rely on the grid to produce your own energy after a certain point. I think that's really cool. Um, but yeah, it's like, you could also make the same argument to environmentalists. It's like, oh, so you don't like nuclear, you hate the environment. Like, <laughs> no, they think they're doing it a favor because they also don't realize that nuclear waste is super safe to store. And here's one of my other favorite factoids. Um, all of the nuclear produ all of the nuclear waste that has been produced in the United States since we started deploying reactors could fit on a football field stacked 50 meters high. Wow. Like, so, and, and most of the stuff is stored on site at the nuclear sites anyway. Like they think that you're just going to have like toxic waste yeah. dumps, you know, and that's just not, it's the most regulated um, it's the most regulated form of energy we have. And that also causes some problems with build outs, right? Like you'll have guys making a nuclear power plant. They lay a bunch of concrete for the base and like, you know, a, a, an inspector will come in 
one rebar is like, you know, an inch or two off of where it's supposed to be and they have to tear up the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what, what are we doing here? Like, do we actually care about energy independence and, and reducing emissions or are we just here to like dick around? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talked about microgrids and like being energy independent. I think like part of what makes Bitcoin so cool is that you can be free and you can be sovereign. Um, like, do you think Bitcoin mining will like encourage more energy independence or like the build out of microgrids at all? Or like being able to be sufficient, like at your own home or within your community and like produce the energy for, for that specific community. Cause like part of like I, the grid's cool and all and, 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 and massive nuclear power plants are cool, but it's also kind of scary to think that we could all be dependent mm -hmm. on the grid. I mean, to some extent we definitely are today. What do you think? Um, I think that there's a good argument to be made that Bitcoin can incentivize building out those things in the sense that like, and also renewables too. So I just spent like the last like 15 minutes kind of dumping on renewables, <laughs> but like, let's assume that you are going to continue to build out this capacity. Right. And I, I, I don't think that wind farms or solar is going away. Um, but you know, one of the problems with building out some of those grids is, you know, they're in the middle of nowhere, they're in the desert, they're in West Texas, and you have to build transmission lines, high voltage, like multi-million dollar projects that take, you know, long time in. Um, and what do you do when you're building out that capacity and you can't ROI it for a couple of years? Well, you can slap a Bitcoin mine there and then you can immediately dispatch that electricity and, and earn income for it. And I think this is something, I mean, we talk about it in mining a lot and it's somewhat theoretical because it's not being done at scale, um, you know, like a massive scale. But, um, you know, it's, it's a really cool use case and it's a really revolutionary thing to think that you have a buyer of first and last resort yeah. at any energy producing, um, on any, any energy producing asset in the world. I mean, that's just never happened. You've never been able to immediately dispatch of something like that and turn, turn energy and electricity into monetary value without there being mass infrastructure to bring it to, you know, commercial, residential, industrial, and things like that. Um, and I think in the, for the nuclear case, this is also probably pretty, um, could be potentially good for nuclear because nuclear buildouts take a long time. Um, they're extremely, extremely um, capital intensive. But if you can tell them that, you know, once you have this thing up, even when you overproduce, you can soak up that electricity and earn income from it. You know, maybe that helps ease some of the, um, ease some of the burdens for capitalizing um, one of these projects. So, and in terms of like micro uh, grids and stuff, I would love to have solar on my house one day for exactly that, like being able to monetize the excess energy and be able to maybe even pay off my um, loan for putting that solar up yeah. um, with Bitcoin mining. I think that it absolutely has a use case. Um, it's just a matter of like, you got to kind of get creative with it and like, what is the specific, uh, you know, what's the specific energy asset that you're trying to monetize? So, yeah, definitely. This might be one of the last questions, but I think it could be uh, interesting to hear what you say here. We talked about the uh, China mining ban back in 2021. What's the, is that, is the ban still active right now? And if it is, like, is there anyone still mining Bitcoin in China or? So yes and yes to both. Um, the okay. ban is very much still active, and but there's still capacity in China that the CCP tolerates mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. I mean, I think it's important to remember and this is for any government, I think, you know, as much as I like to kind of like wax about like the uniparty or the deep state or like, you know, I call it the regime, whatever you want to call it. Um, even in the U.S. government, there are multiple competing factions, right? And there are multiple competing interests. And China is, you know, they, India recently surpassed them, but China is the second largest country by population in the world. Um, and the CCP is a monolith, but it's not that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, a bunch of different pockets yeah. that within it. Right. And so if you know someone at the CCP, if you're well connected, mm -hmm. you can, you, you're still, you're still hashing. Right. And even if you're not, maybe you're taking a risk. Yeah. Maybe you're like, you've got like one megawatt or even less and you're just like, they're probably not going to find out. Right. Or there's just like mm -hmm. two small potatoes to worry about. What I do know is that for the sites that are still active, you know, it's probably in that one to five megawatt range. Like you're not going to get much bigger than that or else they're going to find out. And if you do have more than that, it's probably no more than 10 um, because you, you, maybe you're well connected enough to have a, a site that large, but they're just, 
that's probably kind of the like I've heard is kind of like the the maximum. Mm. That the real thing is though, it's like they'll tolerate you mining to a point, but you can't import rigs. So if you try to import rigs into China, like you and the person who sold them to you, if they're a Chinese citizen, could could face you know um, prosecution. Interesting. Um, but that still doesn't stop them from trying, right? So you see, actually, like they'll some miners will um, import rigs to China, but they'll like disassemble them <laughs> and just ship them piecemeal wow. and then reassemble them back in China, right? So it's like you're definitely taking a risk, but it's not as risky as like you know. Customs opens it up and then it's just clearly a Bitcoin miner, right? <laughs> but if it's a bunch of fans and just yeah. like hash boards and like the chassis, then it's just like, okay, well, this might computer. be, yeah, it's a computer. It could be anything, right? <laughs> um, and the last thing about that too, it's interesting because you're not able to import new rigs, they're all operating older equipment. So it's like you still probably have some S9s active in China, mm-hmm. S17s, M20s, um, some S19s that were there before the ban and stuff like that. But like the XPs, the S21, stuff like that, they're not going to be able to operate those. So assuming that this ban holds up and that they can't import more black market rigs as fast as the rest of the world can upgrade their hash rate, we should continue to see whatever China's dominance is for um, hash rate or their share of hash rate continue to decline. It's anywhere from maybe 20, 10 to 20 percent right now, probably 10 to 15. Yeah. And so you could probably expect that to continue to get chipped away as, yeah. as, as more countries deploy hash. So, huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was wondering, like, as you were talking about, it, I was like, is it still less than 1 percent? But you, you think it's still like 10 percent? It could be as much. It could, it could be, uh, you know, when we ran numbers for our um, end of year report, and I think also maybe for the um, Q2 report this year, I mean, the upper bound was probably about 20%, which is still pretty significant, right? I think people underestimate just how much was going on in that region, right? Um, but I would say probably, yeah, a conservative estimate would be 10%. Nice, cool. Yeah. Last question, then we can wrap it up. 10, 20 years from now, where do you see the Bitcoin mining industry? And then also, like, where do you see Bitcoin? Mm, oh, man, where do I see Bitcoin? Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't like doing price predictions. But it doesn't have to be about price at all, yeah. <laughs> um, so I see Bitcoin mining kind of like I was saying earlier. I think that you're going to see continued integration with um, energy companies, energy producers, things like that. I think that the natural progression of this technology, it just it 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 is like it is going to be a feature of grids going forward. Once enough energy companies and they're starting to get tuned into it, um, there's a lot of hype and a lot of misinformation. And, you know, like the wider crypto industry really can paint it in a bad light sometimes. So sometimes it's hard to convince, especially a lot of these guys are like old, right? Like they're boomers or they're Gen Xers and like maybe they don't understand it very well or they're kind of wary about it. But once they start, once you kind of like separate the Bitcoin part from the Bitcoin mining part, which I know that sounds kind of weird, but I think there is an entirely different thing to own Bitcoin outright. And there's another thing to have an, an income producing asset yeah. like hash rate right like having actual production is it, i know for my dad it was the thing that got him yeah. finally to understand it. he's like oh so there's energy backing this thing this is this is a this is a commodity production business once you can convince enough energy operators that this is a way for them to monetize excess energy i think you're just going to see it snowball mm-hmm. i mean it, it to me it just it, it it's just almost so simple it seems stupid but like if you can just slap you know a data center, you know, on an energy producing asset. It doesn't have to be big. Maybe it's just a few boxes, right? A few ant boxes or like, you know, the containers. Um, it just makes sense to be able to deploy that hash rate, you know, to, um, to, to soak up excess electricity. So I think that in 10, 20 years, you're going to see more energy producers. Mining as a business will be completely different. Um, it'll be like the kind of pure play mining companies that we see now won't exist at least not in their current form a lot of the mining companies will probably transition into um operators for these power producers and for these power plants or power companies um as for where i see bitcoin that's tough man um i think it's undeniable that it's becoming a feature of financial systems i think that you don't have to think that it's going to become the world reserve currency to to accept that it's going to be a feature of financial and capital markets going forward um, and I think that, you know, whether or not I'm like being, being able to go to, you know, my local coffee shop or like start or like uh, target or like Safeway or something and buy my groceries with Bitcoin, maybe that's coming. 
Um, I, I personally don't think that that will be like, I don't, um, it's, it's Gresham's law, right? Like I don't want to spend my Bitcoin. Yeah. I want to spend my dollars yeah. so that I can then save in Bitcoin. Right. I, I think that potentially though, it could be interesting to see if nation states, um, or, you know, um, financial, um, financial institutions start using it as a sort of settlement layer. Um, I, I do think that volatility will be a problem. I don't think that people want to use something that's volatile as a settlement layer. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe fiat apocalypse really does happen though. And we go back to commodity backed money, which I think that, you know, in, in kind of like, like while this, like, you know, like cypherpunk, you know, like, uh, Bitcoin utopic dreams is, is kind of seeing some sort of commodity backed money. And maybe that's backed by Bitcoin, right? Like, I think it is conceivable that you might have some nations that do have a sort of fiat currency. Well, it wouldn't be fiat at that point, but it would be some sort of currency that is backed by Bitcoin reserves or some sort of hard money, right? I mean, like people forget, I don't need to tell this to you, but the whole fiat experiment is what, 50 years old, really? You know, like, so people think that this is just the way that money is, but it's actually not been the way that money is for a long time. Yeah. So... Yeah, no, that's a good answer. This is a definitely an experiment. I think Bitcoin. People say Bitcoin's an experiment, yeah. but you know, over time, people might be like, actually, this is not the experiment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or maybe this is the safer experiment. Yeah, you know yeah, what exactly. I mean. Like, I guess everything's technically kind yeah. of an experiment. Yeah, yeah, everything is just you know subject to market forces, supply and demand, and you know network effects. And you know maybe I'm naive or crazy, but I'm at the point with Bitcoin where it's like I just don't really see it going away until something better comes around. And you know maybe that better thing will come eventually. But in our lifetimes, like, and again maybe this is foolish, but I, I foresee it being just a feature of, of financial systems of, of economies and whatever, however, whatever form that takes is up to the people who are sending it right and yeah. accepting it. So. Yeah, and if something better comes around, I mean. I, feel like at the end of the day bitcoin is just an accounting system just a ledger of like who owns what and it's a fixed amount it's like how can you improve a fixed amount like the software around it could change but as long as you keep that you know accounting system that was just distributed through proof of work where there were no insiders then like the you know the transaction process could change the way we settle bitcoin could change or whatever we call bitcoin but it's like the invention was this immutable ledger that we can't change and i have a hard time seeing how something could replace it but Time will tell. Yeah, I know. I feel like it's like, I don't know. It was probably a hard, hard for people to conceptualize gold coinage being replaced by paper money in banks. But, yeah. you know, eventually maybe something will come around. But I don't know. I don't know what that would look like either. So, yeah. Well, Colin, this was, this was fun talking about mining, talking about Bitcoin. So I enjoyed it. I'm glad we could do this. Yeah, this is awesome, Joe. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>